Chapter Eleven of The Sword of Deborah by F. Tennyson Jesse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Eleven, and the Bright Eyes of Danger. Since the beginning of things, women have been mixed up in war, and it is only as the world has become more civilized, if in view of the present one can make that assertion, that their place in it has been questioned. The whole question of the civilian population has taken on a different aspect since the outbreak of this war, owing to the extraordinary and unprecedented penalties attached to the civilian status by Germany, but the subdivision labelled women has perhaps undergone more revision than any. It has undergone so much revision, in fact, that women have, in large masses, ceased to be civilians and are ranked as the army if it be frankly conceded that it is as natural for women to want to get to the war as men one clears the way for profitable discussion without wasting time while the outworn epithets of unwomanly and sensation hunters are flung through the air to the great obscuring thereof the delight in danger for its own sake is common to all human beings to the young as an intoxicant to the old as a drug it is not the least of the tragedies of woman that this is a delight in which she is so seldom able to indulge. When the war broke out, every one wanted to go and see what it was like, and it is merely useless to observe that this was treating it as a huge picnic. Before the tightening up process began, in the wonderful days when the war was still fluid, it was possible to get out to the front, the real front, on all sorts of excuses. The tightening up was necessary, and all too slow, but let us not, because of that, fall into the error of calling the instinct which urges non-combatants mere curiosity, as though that were not the greatest of the gifts of the gods, without which nothing is done. Among these non-combatants, who wanted to see the war, were many women, and if, mixed with their patriotism and desire to help, went a streak of that love of danger which is no disgrace to a man, why, I maintain that it is no disgrace to a woman either, but as natural an instinct as that which drives one to a wayside orchard if one is hungry. There is nothing sooner slaked, for the time being, than this inherent love of danger. Men who wanted the fun of it at the beginning of the war are heartily sick of it now, though they wouldn't be out of it for worlds. But most of the women haven't been allowed enough danger to get sick of it, and so, in patches of young women you meet working in France, the old craving still lifts its head. I came across a delightful streak of it at T, the oldest big convoy in France. The garage, over which the girls live, for their camp is a still building, is set in the eye of the cold winter winds on the top of a hill overlooking the sea. It was snowing heavily as I drove up, great fat flakes of snow that wove and interwove in the air in the way that only snowflakes can, so that sometimes they look as though they were falling upwards. The long line of the wooden garage showed dark in the background. In the space before it, the ambulances stood about, but the girls were fox-trotting in couples all about them, their big rubber boots shuffling up little clouds of snow. On the head of one girl was swathed a greenish-blue handkerchief, which made a lovely note of color against the swirling whiteness. I was taken in through the garage, where two drivers were painting their cars, for all painting is done by the girls, sometimes with unexpected effects, as one car which I saw, where Eve from the Tatler and her little dog were depicted in front of the body, and up a flight of wooden stairs with an out-of-doors landing on top, to the cubicles which opened off either side of the open-ended passage for the whole length of the building. Here, in one of the little bedrooms for two, we had a meal of cocoa and cake, known as the Elevener, 
for the obvious reason that it is consumed at eleven every morning. It was all quite different from my evening at the convoy at E, but equally stimulating. The great plaint of the girls was that they weren't allowed near the fighting line, and I heard a story of how, in the early days, two cars had managed to get right through to the Popering, when that town was the centre of the Boches' attentions, by the simple expedient of the girl drivers turning up their coat collars, pulling their peaked caps well down over their eyes, and just going ahead. They had a lovely time in Poperinge, and lunched under shellfire, and when the military, including the staff, were sitting in cellars, those chaufferettes sallied forth and bought picture postcards. It is a shame they won't let us go up to the line now. Yes, indeed, put in another very seriously, as though she were adding the last uncontrovertible proof to the perfidy of the authorities. They let the sisters get shelled, so why shouldn't they let us? Isn't that a delightful spirit, and, I beg leave to insist, a perfectly natural and proper one? Any decent human being would like to be shelled, who hasn't been shelled too much. It's like being in love, a thing that ought to happen at least once to everybody. One of my hostesses was a violinist and plays at all the concerts for the wounded which take place thereabouts. I asked her whether she didn't find the work ruination to her fingers for the violin, but all she said carelessly was that they had been ruined for three years now, but it didn't matter, as always she couldn't have practiced even if she had time, since there were always some girls trying to sleep. And what do the local French people think of these young girls in their midst, who work like men and are out in all weathers and drive the soldiers wounded in the great common cause? They are quite charming to them, and indeed, when they first came, the French met them at every station with bouquets of flowers, so that the girls, pleased and embarrassed, English fashion, had a triumphal progress. But there are some of the French neighbors who think the life must be very hard on the poor things, and when, a little while ago, the convoy organized a paper chase, the popular belief was that the hares were escaping from the rigors of life. When the panting hares asked wayfaring traps for a lift, it was refused them, as, though the kindly drivers had every sympathy with the projected escape, they were not going to assist them to defy authority. The hardships which this convoy had undergone I did not hear about from them, but from their commandant. She told me of three weeks at the beginning of things, when there were no fires, no hot water, except a little always simmering for pouring into the radiators of the cars when there came a night call. For snow was frozen on the ground all those three weeks, and the water in the jugs was ice. The girls didn't talk about that because they were not interested in it, but neither would they talk about one other thing, though for a very different reason, and that was of the time when, after the great German gas attacks at Newport, they had to drive the gassed men who came on the hospital trains. You can't get them now to describe what that was like, nor would you have tried, warned by the sudden change of voice in which even they mentioned it. There was one point in which this convoy seemed to me to touch the extreme of abnegation attained by the GSVADs, I had seen much earlier in my visit a GSVAD convoy, but had not mentioned it because I saw it before I had really grasped essentials, and it appeared to me then just a plain convoy, and the bare facts of it were not as spectacular as those relating to the fannies. I chose the latter to write about. The GSVADs, as I have said, rank as privates, and among them are workers of every kind, scrubbers, cooks, dispensers, clerks, motor-drivers, this GSVAD convoy which I had seen was made up of girls who had exchanged from VAD convoys, mostly from this very one at T, where I now was. And so they happened to be all friends and all girls of gentle birth. But when I saw their quarters, 
in a couple of tall French houses that had been converted to the purpose, I was very upset by the terrible fact that the girls had to share bedrooms. In all the camps I had seen since, both of Fanny's and V.A.D.'s, each girl had her own tiny room, which she cherished as her own soul, which, indeed, is what it amounts to. And the WAC officers, of course, had their own private rooms, though the girls slept in dormitories. This convoy at tea was the only voluntary one I had come across, where the inestimable privilege of solitude was missing, though that will be put right when the new camp is built. And here I may mention that, as deeply as I admire all the girls who are working so splendidly in France, I think perhaps my meed of admiration brims highest for these members of the GSVADs, who are gently born, for this very reason of the sleeping accommodation. Let us be frank, and admit, for the generality of working girls, such as the wax and a large proportion of the GSVADs, it is not nearly so great a hardship to sleep in dormitories as it is for girls who have, as a matter of course, always been accustomed to privacy. It is not so bad in the case of members of a GS convoy, such as that I have mentioned, where the girls are all friends. But what of those ladies who live in the big camps and sleep in long huts with other girls of every class, all, doubtless, decent good girls, but, in the nature of things, often girls with whom any ground of meeting must be limited to the barest commonalities of life? Also sometimes those in authority, those who are and always were professionals, not amateurs, have been known to use the power given to them, by the inferior rating of these girls, to make them rather miserable. Personally, I have long had a theory which will doubtless bring down on me howls of rage from those who will say I am decrying the most noble of professions, that women are not meant to be nurses. It brings out all that is worst in them. The love of routine for its own sake, that deadly snare to which women and government officials succumb so much more easily than do men, is fostered in them. And so is the love of authority for their own sakes, which is almost worse. It has taken nothing less than this way to show what splendid creatures nurses are under their starched aprons. In times of peace only amateur women should be nurses, for it may be observed that the V.A.D. nurses, though they have had long enough to do it in, have not developed the subtle disease of nursitis. Evidently nursing is a thing, like love-making, which should never become a profession. I was glad to have seen all the different convoys I had, because no two had been to me alike, and to each I am indebted for a differing expression of the same vision, which is the vision splendid of a duty undertaken gladly and sustained with courage. From my first convoys, the Fannies and the GSVADs, I got the wonderful facts of it. At the VAD convoy at E, I caught that side of it, which I was most glad of all to encounter, and at the VAD convoy at T, I found that delightful spirit of sheer joy in danger, which is too precious to be allowed to die out of the world, just because there happens to be, at present, such a great deal too much danger let loose upon it. CHAPTER Twelve, REST The snow danced in a fine white mist over the ploughed fields, and drove perpetually against the northerly sides of the tall, bare tree-trunks that lined the way for miles, hardly finding a hold upon the smooth flanks of the plains, but sinking into the rough-barked limes, till they looked dappled with their brown ridges and the white veining, and oddly as though covered with the pelt of some strange animal. High in the web of bare branches, the clumps of mistletoe showed as filigree nests for some race of fairy birds. Gracious country this, for all the desolate whiteness. It lay in great rolling slopes with drifts of purplish elms in the folds, and on the levels winding steel-dark streams along whose banks the upward-springing willows burned an ardent rust-color. 
and as the car rocked and bounded along, and the windscreen first starred in one place, then in another, then fell out altogether, one got a better and better view of it all. What a wonderful people the French are for agriculture! Hardly a man did I see all the days I motored about and about, but I saw mile after mile of cultivated land, the somberly clad women or boys guiding the snow-ploughs, the rough-coated horses pulling patiently, white horses that looked pale against the bare earth, but a dark yellow when the snow came up to show the tarnishing that the service of man brings upon beasts. Several times I saw English soldiers ploughing, and rejoiced. We came into the town that was our bourne in the grey of the evening, past the grey glimmer of the river between its grey stone quays, past the grey miracle of the cathedral, and then, in the rapidly deepening dusk, turned in through great wrought-iron gates into a grey courtyard. It may have been gathered that, as much as I admired both their practical perfection and their spiritual significance, I am no lover of camps, which seemed to me among all things man created upon God's earth about the most depressing. I had lived and moved and had my being in camps, it seemed to me, for countless ages. The edges of my soul were frayed with camps. From the moment of walking into the old house at R, a wonderful sense of rest that brooded over the place enveloped me. The thing had an atmosphere, impossible to exaggerate, though very difficult to convey, but I shall never forget the miracle that house was to me. It was a hostel for the relations of wounded, and there are in France at present some half-dozen of these houses, supported by the Joint War Committee of the Red Cross, and the Order of St. John, and staffed by V.A.D.'s. At all of them the relations of badly wounded are lodged and fed free of charge, while cars meet them and also convey them to and from the hospital. This much I knew as plain facts. What I had not been prepared for was the breath of exquisite pleasure that emanated from this house. The house was originally a butter market, and the entrance room, set about with little tables where the relations have their meals, has one side entirely of glass. The lounge beyond, which is for the staff, is glass-roofed, while that opening on the right hand of the dining-room, the lounge for the relations, has long windows all down the side. So it will be seen that light and air are abundant on the ground floor of the hostel, in spite of the fact that it looks on to a courtyard. From the relations' lounge, with its slim vermilion pillars ringed about with seats like those round tree-trunks, there goes up a curving staircase of red tiles, with a curved baluster of oak, greyish with age, a griffin sitting upright upon the newel. Up this staircase I was taken to my room, and there the completion of peace came upon me. One could see at a glance it would be quiet, beautifully quiet. Its window gave on to the sloping grey flanks of pointed roofs, and showed a filigree spire, prickling the pale bubble of the wintry sky. Its walls were panelled from floor to ceiling, its hangings of white and vermilion, its floor dark and polished, and on the wide stone hearth burned a wood fire. And, to crown all, after tiny huts, it was so big a room that the corners were filled with gracious shadow, and the firelight flickered up and down on the panelling and glimmered in the polished floor and set the shadows quivering. I lay back in a vermilion-painted chair, and felt steeped in the bath of restfulness that the place was. The whole house was perfectly got up, the maximum of effect having been attained with the minimum of expense, though not of labour, it all having been achieved under the direction of a former superintendent with a genius for decoration, who is now V.A.D. area commandant and still lives at the hostel. The evening I arrived there, she and the staff were busy stenciling a buff bedspread with blue galleons in full sail, varied by gulls. Everything is exceedingly simple. 
there is no fussy detail, nothing to catch dirt. The walls are all panelled and painted either ivory or dark brown. The furniture is of wicker and plain wood, painted in gay colours, rich blues and vermilion. The tablecloths are of red or blue checks. In the spacious bedrooms are simple colour schemes. In one there are thick, straight curtains of flaming orange, in another of a deep blue, in another of red and white checked material. The floors are polished wood or red tiles strewn with rugs. Vivid colored cushions lie in the easy chairs, and set about in earthen jars are great branches of mimosa and lilac from the south, boughs of pussy willow, the tender velvety gray ovals blossoming into fragile yellow dust. All along the sills are indoor window boxes filled with hyacinths of pink and white and a cold faint blue. On the walls the only decoration is that of posters, and these create an extraordinary effect as of a series of windows, opening upon different climes and strange worlds, windows set in ivory walls. Here is an old Norman castle, grey against a sky of luminous yellow. There is a stream in Brittany, which you can almost hear brawling past the plane trees with their freckled trunks, while beyond it, through another window, you see a pergola of roses whose deep red has turned wine-coloured under the moonlight, and beyond that again, the white cliffs of England go down into a peacock sea. And, in the Red Cross dining-room, the polu, his mouth open on a yell of encouragement, charges with uplifted hands, looking over his shoulder at you with bright daring eyes, and you do not need the inspiration underneath of On Le Aura to guess what spirit urges him. This, then, is the setting for one of the most merciful works of the Red Cross. That it is appreciated is shown by the fact that at Christmas, at this house, with its staff of superintendent, cook, parlour-maid, housemaid, and tweeny, with one chefuse, there were forty relations of wounded staying. The average number of people for whom army and Red Cross rations are drawn three times a week is twenty-five, but for these rations, as for fifteen are drawn, as the food supply is too generously proportioned for a household consisting so largely of women. But it will be seen that with a constantly fluctuating population the task of housekeeping is no easy one, though it is tackled by the voluntary staff with gaiety and courage. They have troubles of their own, too, the members of that staff, and in the big kitchen, where among the dishes on the table a pink hyacinth bloomed, the fair-haired cook I saw so busily working was back from a leave in England that was to have been her marriage leave, had not her fiancé been killed the day before he was to join her. Now she is amongst her pots and pans again, and smiling still, as I can testify. The tweeny, who also describes herself as a boot-boy, is a young war-widow. Things like these are almost beyond the admiration of mortals less severely tested. The material difficulties are not the worst in a hostel of this kind, which in its very nature presupposes grief. The relations, of course, are of all kinds, after every pattern of humanity, and each makes his or her emotional demand, if not an active appeal to sympathy, yet in the strain that it entails on the sensitively organized to see others in sorrow. And unless you are sensitive, you are no good for work such as this. This hostel is blessed in its superintendent, an American V.A.D., worker of a personality so simpatica, there is no adequate English word for what I mean, that you are aware of it at the first meeting with her, and she is a woman of the world, which is not always the case with women workers, however excellent. Shortly before I came to the hostel, a very young wife arrived to see her husband, who lay desperately ill in one of the hospitals. When he died she became as a thing distraught, and could not be left, and the superintendent even had to have her sleep in her room with her all the time she was there. 
Others, again, are aloof in their sorrow, though it is none the less tragic for that. The first question on the lips of the staff, when the chefuse comes back from taking the relatives to the hospital, is, Was it good news? It was good news for the couple who arrived on the same evening that I did, the mother and father of a young officer who was very badly injured. I saw them next morning in the lounge, sitting quietly on either side of the center stove. A businessman and his wife, as neat, he in his serge suit, she in her satin blouse, and carefully folded lace and smooth gray hair, as if they had not been traveling for a day and a night on end, racked by anxiety, though you could see the deep lines that the strain had left. He looked at me with those patient eyes of the elderly which hold the same unconscious pathos as those of animals, and talked in a low, quiet voice, and it seemed almost an impertinence of a total stranger to assure these gentle, dignified people of her gladness that their only son was safe. Yet how glad one is that any of these brief contacts in passing should be of happiness! It is so impossible not to weep with them that weep, that it is a keen joy to be able to rejoice with them that do rejoice. "'It's so free here,' he told me. "'That's what the wife and I like so. No rules and regulations. You can do just what you like, as though you were in your own home. No feeling that as you don't pay you've got to do what you're told.' And there was expressed the spirit of the hostel, as I discovered it. There are no rules, and it is always impressed upon the superintendents that the relations are not obliged to go there, that they do so because they choose to, and must be treated as honored guests. In the dining-room there are little tables, as at a hotel, so that the different parties can keep to themselves if they prefer it. There are no times for going out or coming in, no times for lights out, no need to have a meal in if the visitor mentions he is going out for it. The relations who stay at these hostels are guests in every sense of the word, there is not one trace of red tape or the faintest feeling of obligation about the whole thing. And that must have been what I felt in the very air of the place when I arrived. What still was so precious a balm over me who had been in camp after camp, institution after institution. This place, with its quiet walls and its gray shutters wing-wide upon its gray walls, was not only beautiful and rich with that richness only age can give. It was instinct as well with freedom and with peace. End of chapter 12